Hope you were with us yesterday, but if not, this is your first time. Welcome to V. We had an extraordinary series of conversations yesterday, and we are incredibly grateful for all the good folks who showed up to be with us. I uh, expect if you're tuning in, you're hoping for a lot more of that today, and I think that's what's on offer. So you're not going to want to hear from me uh, for very long, but I do want to tell you a couple quick pieces of housekeeping. One is chances are you're looking in the chat box while you're listening to me. Go ahead, and, and especially if you didn't yesterday, no one bites. I can testify to that. Go ahead and use the chat. Make sure you're in conversation with one another. It's going to enrich the whole experience for all of us. What you have to offer is unique and different from anybody else. So we appreciate you and we really hope you're feeling comfortable about participating. We were surprised and delighted to see over 1,500 folks with us yesterday, an awful lot of them participating in the chat, but then also on Twitter and other social media. So if you want to do that, if you're one of those people who, God bless you, can manage two screens, uh, one of the things I can tell you is uh, we're using a couple hashtags to organize ourselves. The primary one is hashtag ComNetworkV, and I'm a lousy speller, so bear with me. It's C-O-M-N-E-T-W-O-R-K, the letter V, right? Or uh, the hashtag comms for good, which is where the network exists across the year. So encourage you, please do go ahead and uh, avail yourselves of that. Some wonderful conversations unfolding on social and in the chat. Another thing that we do or have been doing since we found ourselves in these incredibly turbulent and unsettling times is we've been borrowing an idea uh, when we gather. Uh, it's called the two-word check-in. And this is an idea that we borrowed from Professor Brene Brown. Uh, down at the University of Houston. If you're familiar with her work, she's just extraordinary and a, a huge teacher to all of us here at Network HQ. Uh, and so what she does is this two-word check-in. So if you would, just now in the chat, go ahead and put in your name, where you're coming in from, and then two words. How you doing right now? And just be honest. Listen, for me, uh, after yesterday, a little less nervous and incredibly excited for today. That's more than two words. So I guess I would say relaxed and thrilled or excited. That's three. But suffice to say, put those into the chat, and I've got you all lit up back here, so I'll be checking in with you in just a quick minute. Um, you have a couple of wonderful choices in front of you. You're watching me because you probably already made one. One, we're going to focus on voting, and just off on the in the control room to my right, I can see all the great folks you're going to be chatting with. Eric's going to lead an incredible conversation. But if you're waiting for Soledad O'Brien and the conversation she had with uh, Sochi and Miss Miriam, you're going to be in for a real treat as well. The great news is you don't have to miss anything. We are recording everything that we're doing. And if you give us about 24 hours, you'll find it up online. So stick with what you got. You made an excellent choice, I promise you. And with that, let me go ahead and let's get into the day. And I'll see you back again a little bit later on. Be well. Thanks, everybody. Be good to each other. Good morning, everyone. Thank you all for joining us for Calm Network's panel discussion called Civic Engagement in Voting, a Southern Perspective. My name is Javier Eric Olvera, and I'm the Chief Communications Officer for the Southern Poverty Law Center. I'm going to be your moderator today. Before we, be we begin, I'd like to go over some important information. The audience is currently muted. Uh, closed captioning has been enabled for this discussion. To view, please click the closed caption button at the bottom of your screen. So Georgia has emerged as a major 2020 battleground state and a hotbed for voting rights and census issues. Black, Latinx, and Asian voters are growing in Georgia, and they are overwhelmingly targets of voter and census oppression. In today's discussion, we will talk about COVID-19, restrictive voting laws, voter purges, malfunctioning voter uh, machines, long waits and lines, redlining, redistricting, and the census. I would like to now introduce you to the panelists. Uh, first, we have Tamika Atkins. Tamika is the Executive Director of Pro-Georgia. Then we have Stephanie Cho, the Executive Director of Asian Americans Advancing Justice Atlanta. Next, we have Jerry Gonzalez, Executive Director of Galeo. And we have Wanda Moosley, Senior Coordinator of Black Voters Matter. So I wanted to begin this discussion uh, by talking a little bit about your organizations and what you all are doing for engaging um, and mobilization of black and brown voters across the state of Georgia. Tamika, do you want to go first? 
Yes, uh, thank you. Good afternoon, good morning to the audience. Uh, thank you, Eric, for the kind introduction. So my name is Tamika Atkins and I'm the Executive Director of Pro-Georgia. Uh, and we are a state table that coordinates statewide civic engagement and voter registration plans with 38 partners across the state of Georgia. Uh, we use data to inform our work so that we can be strategic and effective in reaching as many voters of color, as many new and low propensity voters. Uh, so people who are typically not engaged in our democracy, who are not contacted, we reach out to them to bring them into our democracy and we prioritize expanding the electorate of those who are available and eligible to vote in Georgia. Uh, from Pro-Georgia, some of our experiences have been, you know, COVID had really changed how we reach and register voters. Uh, it made it very difficult for us to register voters in person, and we wanted to make sure our community and our partners were safe. Uh, to that end, we created what we call QR codes and bit.ly links so that our partners can go out uh, in the field with materials uh, and have people scan their t-shirts, scan their handouts, and get directed towards online voter registration links. Uh, we also, in Georgia, have, we have 159 counties. We have the most amount of counties behind Texas. Uh, and in order to make sure we can reach our people of color across the state and not just in Metro Atlanta, we sent out what we call civic care packages, and that included cell phones, laptops, uh, and hotspots and tablets across the state so that uh, canvassers and organizers could continue to reach out and engage voters of color across the state. Uh, and to date, since the June primary, our partners have uh, had over 700,000 conversations with voters over the phone and via text. We've also sent out over 800,000 census outreach and informative text messages to make sure that our community is counted in the census. This is all work that is done by our partners uh, in the field, uh, many who are on this call now. Uh, and Pro-Georgia provides the data and the tools so that our partners can focus on uh, doing what they do best, which is reaching out and engaging our shared communities. That's so great. Thanks for that. Uh, Stephanie. Hi. <laughs> um, thanks for having us. And um, uh, we are a proud partner of the State Table with Tamika and a lot of the other lovely people on this panel. We have a pleasure to be with people that really understand um, the issues that are happening in Georgia. So Asian Americans Advancing Justice Atlanta, uh, mission is to protect and promote the civil and human rights of Asian Americans, Native Hawaiians, Pacific Islanders, and the overall Amenza community in Georgia and the South. We do that through our policy advocacy work, our legal services that includes deportation defense, which we work with as PLC, and our impact litigation when needed, and organizing and civic engagement. So this year, we are seeing so many different challenges because of our population that we serve in the Asian American community. There's so many um, limited English proficient individuals here. And in Georgia, the ballots are all in except for in um, one area of And I think when we're looking at access this year and looking at the challenges, um, we need to over-communicate to different uh, communities, particularly communities uh, that are immigrant, uh, people of color, and we're looking to see ways that more people can do. We also use the QR code um, that Tamika is doing and we translate that into multiple different languages. We have it on hand sanitizers, we have it on sandwich boards outside of, um, you know, ethnic markets. Um, we have it um, at senior centers. We have it um, at churches because a lot of the churches have reopened here in Georgia as well. And so we're doing that as safely as possible with a mask and out in the field, but it's a really different um, reality. And what we would like as an organization is for, and this is why we started this campaign for Clear Georgia time, get more access language access at the ballot, just even to have uh, information in different languages that's translated about absentee ballot um, information about where to vote, about where the new ballot boxes uh, are going to be, 
Um, that is really critical, especially with the misinformation that's happening between the different community colors in Georgia. We need to give accurate information in multiple different languages. Great. Thank you, Stephanie. Uh, Jerry. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, my name is Jerry Gonzalez. I am executive director of Galeo, uh, the Georgia Association of Latino Elected Officials. Uh, glad to be with you all. Our organization uh, focuses on two primary things. One is uh, promoting leadership development of the Latino community across the great state of Georgia, but also uh, promoting civic engagement, and that involves voter engagement, it involves uh, working with the census, it involves encouraging people to become uh, U.S. citizens, uh, and it involves uh, people uh, advocating for their own beliefs and rights. Uh, so one of the things that I think uh, we, we've had to pivot a lot uh, significantly as well as, as Tamika and Stephanie had alluded to, uh, we're doing a lot of the similar things. I think uh, one thing that I do want to point out is uh, our partnerships with uh, our Spanish media have, uh, have increased tremendously because uh, there is important information that we need to get out to our community. And as Stephanie alluded to, language access in Georgia for the Spanish-speaking community or for other uh, language minority communities uh, is not really available except for in one county out of 159. So we've had to do a lot of work uh, in Spanish uh, to make sure that we're reaching uh, new Latinx voters that are wanting to engage in the process, but have questions or may have problems. And Jerry, I think we may have lost you. Let's give him a couple more seconds if he doesn't come back in. Jerry, I think you're back now. Okay. Uh, yeah, we've been we've been doing a lot of partnerships with Spanish media, so that's been uh, something that we've been uh, working very hard with. We've also make, made sure that we go out to our communities through mail, and social media has played a, a very important role in what we're doing. Our team has become very active on social media. The Latinx uh, community is very active on social media, so we have to be where where our community is, and social media has been a big part of what we've had to do. Uh, for this election. Uh, I did mention also language access, but there's also in Georgia, we're still in the middle of litigation against the state uh, of a citizenship verification process that was put in place in 2008. They've been trying since 2008 to uh, implement that in a non-discriminatory way, but unfortunately, uh, we have seen year after year the disproportionate impact it has not only on the Latino and Asian community that you may think, but also on the African-American community. Uh, it, is a, it is a flawed process uh, and we're working to make sure that we can address that uh, moving forward. Great, thanks so much for that, Jerry. Uh, Wanda. Hello, good morning and or afternoon, everyone. My name is Wanda Mosley, I'm with Black Voters Matter. We are a power building organization um, and we focus primarily on building infrastructure and offering resources to Black-led organizations uh, in, in 10 states, and my work takes place here in Georgia. Uh, we are also a proud member of the C3 table, and we have been able to utilize a lot of the resources offered by the table in terms of hotspots and other equipment, um, and also the QR codes and the billies. We have placed those on walk cards, push cards, and we've also put them on um, our, uh, our vans that are wrapped uh, to mimic our bus. If anybody knows anything about our organization, we pride ourselves in having the blackest bus in America, where we travel around and check on our folks and bring excitement and, and black power and black joy to, to rural communities. And we said, you know what, if we can't get another bus, let's get some baby buses. And while we're at it, let's put those QR codes on these buses because we still have to go out. We still have to find our folks. We still have to provide them the information that they need and the tools that they need to be able to participate in the census, to vote, and also a lot of emphasis this year on vote by mail. And so again, our work primarily takes place in areas outside of Atlanta. And without the resources from the state table, you know, it would be that much more difficult for us to be able to achieve these goals of power building in these areas that don't always have access to internet, don't always have access to a lot of the other technology. Um, so we're finding ourselves um, having to go back old school in a lot of ways. You know, when internet goes down um, and, and it affects our phone banking abilities, our folks are savvy. They will pull out the phone book 
Yes, I said the phone book, and they will start making calls from those landlines. Um, and again, being able to, to use the walk cards with the QR codes, we are anticipating that we are going to deliver over 300,000 door hangers throughout rural areas of our state, and some of the larger cities outside the metro. Um, so, you know, look, we're resilient. We're we going to figure it out. Uh, by any means necessary, we're going to get this information out to our folks because our folks are determined and they are, by any means necessary, going to get to that ballot box this year. That's awesome. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about the history of voter suppression in Georgia. Can you tell us about the experiences of black and brown people um, specific to voting throughout history in the state? And this is sort of like a, an open question for you all. Whoever wants to jump in first, feel free. I mean, so, um, I mean, this is one of those questions where, you know, we know the answer, but sometimes we have to keep talking about it to really understand the impact it has on the access to the ballot now. Um, so, you know, we could talk about, you know, um, in particular, you know, Black people being murdered. There's stories of African-Americans in Georgia uh, one was um, a veteran coming back and exercising his right to vote and being murdered a few days later after voting uh, in Southern Georgia. Um, we have the counting of the jelly beans, right? Um, being able to read and interpret um, the constitution, right? Word for word in order to access, right? So all the poll taxes in order to access the ballot, right? None of this is new. You fast forward to today, right? And then we see one, the gutting of the Voting Rights Act, right? That now leads to no preclearance. And all that means is that states that have a history of bad behavior um, when it comes to giving equitable access to the ballot, right? Now have, you know, um, freedom to close polling locations, consolidate polling locations, right, with little to no notice, right, a little piece of note in a, in a, in a local newspaper. Um, they don't have to send that to the federal government to make sure, right, that they are not disenfranchising voters. And in 2016, the first presidential election after uh, the gutting of Section 5 of the Voting Rights Act, all of us on this call were in the field and we were, you know, getting calls at polling locations. So we're talking about seniors, right, who may have organized buses, right, to be able to get to their voting location, getting there, and it's no longer a voting location. Uh, and, and now there's a cardboard sign maybe that says you have to go to this next location. There's no address, not a map, right? You just have to figure it out. People who took public transportation before they go to work, right, showing up at these polling locations and not being able to stay and vote because now they have to go to a different spot and they still have to go to work. Um, so in a lot of ways, the history, right, the history of voter suppression is, is, our, is our present and what we are currently tackling. Um, I think some of, you know, the, you know, what keeps us, I think, doing this work, the faith, um, the, the positivity, the we got this, is the level of coordination that civic engagement groups across the state have. You know, uh, I think uh, Georgia, Georgia's progressive infrastructure is strong. And these are not organizations who have a surface relationship to the community. These are organizations that are providing advocacy, grassroots organizing, leadership development, in many cases, food and access to resources. And voter registration is a part of what is offered. Um, and I think we are seeing results in our work. That's great. Um, any others have any yeah. insight? Yeah, I can just build on, you know, what Tamika mentioned. Um, we talk about voter suppression and how it, you know, shows itself in many different forms. Um, it's also something that is a result of some bad policies and a lack of fair representation in our state. You know, our, our elected officials don't necessarily reflect the communities which they serve. And so we see things like the fact that we don't have a livable wage in this country or in this state also play a role in people being able to vote. So for example, if I have to travel 30, 45 minutes to a polling precinct, and if I live in a city where we don't have public transit, right, I show up at my polling precinct and because of a pandemic, 
there are fewer poll workers or poll workers who have not been trained properly because they were brought on at the last minute. And then you overlay that with new machines. And now we have caused a delay of two or maybe even three hours before folks are able to vote. And then we think about that 30, 45 minute return trip home or to work. Now I have amassed somewhere around four, maybe even five hours of time that I was not on the clock, that I was not making money to feed my family. Then overlay that with the fact that, you know, in some industries in our state, the minimum wage is still only $5.15 an hour. So I was already struggling before COVID. And now you add that on top of everything with these bad policies. Some people in our state literally cannot afford to vote because they have not been guaranteed free and fair access to the ballot box. So voter suppression comes in many, many different forms. We, we could spend a whole session just talking about what voter suppression looks like in 2020. Um, but, but I did want to offer up another example that's maybe some other folks hadn't considered when we think about, you know, some of the more overt uh, representations of voter suppression. Um, I wanted to highlight um, one um, person who has written extensively about voter suppression in the South and in Georgia, um, Professor Ralph Anderson, um, who all of us know very well in Georgia. And it's called One Person, One Vote. Um, and she talked in great detail about the history of voter suppression and establishing the rights of personhood, particularly for Black people in the South. And it still is the design here that if you you have to actually prove your personhood and eligibility to be in the South, um, so if you're Black, Latinx, Asian, you're voting in all of these different areas, your personhood and eligibility to be in Georgia is questioned while white communities are automatically deemed as a whole person or eligible or legitimate. And, you know, especially today, I am fully sickened by that thought um, because that is the legacy and that is the history and the foundation of voting here. And so when I look at like the way it plays itself out, it is divide and conquer. It is any kind of strategy that they can think of, right? And it can be subtle or it could be completely overt, right? But not giving people the right information, giving people misinformation, in addition to this foundation of you as a person of color have to prove your legitimacy to be here as a person is the part of the South that is so incredibly racist and white that that is actually the core that I, I, I wrestle with like every day when we're doing this uh, work. Um, and so it's something that um, I want to highlight because her book really talks a lot about that. And a lot of people don't understand why is it still an issue now, right? It's because the entire system is that. Yeah, and, and I'd like to add uh, to, to the mix also uh, a story about uh, a few, uh, several years ago, actually, in, in two counties in Georgia, Latino voters were singled out simply for their last names. And there's a peculiar law in Georgia that allows any voter to challenge another voter for their eligibility. And then that requires, uh, it requires a hearing and for the voters to have to be uh, present to be able to defend themselves and justify themselves, as Stephanie was saying, to be able to el be eligible to vote. So in two counties, Long and Atkinson County in real South Georgia, rural South Georgia, uh, they challenged every single Latino voter on the rolls uh, and challenged them on their eligibility to uh, vote. Uh, fortunately, at that time, uh, during the Obama administration, the Department of Justice got involved and was able to fix uh, the situation there and, and prevented that type of uh, blatant challenge that was racially discriminatory uh, from going forward. But that, that's something that happens here in Georgia. I mentioned the citizenship verification and what this process does essentially is what federal law says is once you become a U.S. citizen, that same minute that you become a U.S. citizen, you have the right to be able to exercise your franchise to vote. The state of Georgia, however, says no, not at that moment. You have to prove your citizenship first in order for us to make sure to clear you to register to vote. So there's a clear conflict with, with federal law and it creates additional barriers and burdens for a net newly naturalized citizens as an example. 
uh, in that process. But if there's a typo in a database, uh, also impacts native born US citizens uh, in the African-American community and other minority communities as well. So that, that's, that's another mechanism in which a voter suppression takes form. And then we mentioned language access. It may not seem like a big issue, but many of our community, uh, many, every, not, not everyone in our community is English proficient. And voting is a daunting task and is intimidating to many people uh, if they don't have language access. So language access is a big issue and it's a big form of voter suppression in the state of Georgia. And then lastly, I do wanna talk about, even when we go to court, even when we fight for federal injunctions to, to take into place and when a federal court rules in our favor for protecting rights of voters, some counties disregard those federal court orders on election day. In the chaos of an election day, some county election officials just ignore those orders and really go on perpetuating uh, voter suppression because they can at that time. Uh, and we, we saw that in the 2018 election in some counties here in Georgia where they were just ignoring federal court orders uh, in that process. So I do wanna talk about what you all saw in June during the election However, I, I, there's, there's just one question that like, every time you guys talk about the issues with suppression and laws and um, how the system is ultimately rigged against black and brown people, how is this happening in 2020? That's like the thing that I can't wrap my head around. Like what is happening and how exactly is it still continuing in 2020? Bureaucracy. No, um, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a, a few things. One is, and I think we've all shared that Georgia has 159 counties. And we keep saying that not just because it's a, a number to throw out, but really in a lot of ways, Georgia has 159 fiefdoms, right? That's what it means when it comes to managing, like with the Board of Elections managing the election. And what we have, and ba seriously, back to bureaucracy, between the Secretary of State and the Board of Elections, we've seen uh, throwing responsibility, right, for improving our election administration in Georgia back and forth between each other. No one is culpable, it is not our responsibility. There is a vague gray area, whose responsibility is it to improve systems? That intentional, and I say intentional lack of clarity, that intentional vagueness allows for, um, for uh, not for uh, for no systemic improvements to happen uh, in a standardized manner across the state. I mean, we don't even have standardized early voting in our state. And again, we have 159 counties, so that is significant. Um, it's it's almost like 159 different countries, right? When you think about how they manage their uh, board, their elections so independently of each other and from the state. Uh, I'd say a little bit of what we saw in June, uh, what we saw, you know, we all know the impacts of COVID by now. We know black and brown folks have been hit the hardest. Uh, many of our poll workers, right, are seniors. You know, there was a supposed to be a plan again, somewhere between the Secretary of State and the Board of Elections, right, to move pre-existing polling locations out of senior centers and community centers, right, to make sure that the at-risk population was not gonna be like uh, engaged, interacting with a whole bunch of uh, voters, right? Just to, you know, make sure that they're safe. By our June 9th primary, one, there were still polling locations and senior centers and community centers where there were vulnerable populations. And two, we still had seniors who were poll workers who witnessed with our own eyes, walked off, right? Walked away from the polling location when they saw the lines, they chose their health over the position and no one can blame them, right? But then the, the what comes out of that, the, the result of that is that we don't have enough poll workers to manage the machines. And then as Wanda said, that's how these lines start to extend. And what you thought was going to be a one hour process becomes a five hour process. Um, so, you know, that was one example, but I know my, my uh, partners on the call can share their experiences too. I just would like to add, uh from what Tamika said and, and pick up on something she said uh, in the 
intentionality of it. Uh, it's not by accident that this is happening. It's not a coincidence that this is happening. This is not an oversight of this happening. This is intentional incompetence that is systemic across, uh, across the voting system here in Georgia. Uh, they point fingers to each other and no one is held accountable uh, associated with the implementation of free and fair elections in our state. Uh, and, and really it's gross negligence about uh, how they're conducting their jobs of running these elections in a matter that serves the constituents. Uh, and and they, they lose sight of that. And I think it is intentional. Uh, it is not an accident. It is systemic. And it's, it's part of the reality that we have to deal with here in Georgia. So it is, it is like running a gauntlet uh, to try to exercise your right to vote. Uh, in Georgia is every year you have to check to wh whether you haven't been purged for whatever odd reason. Every year you have to check to if the polling location has changed. Every year you have to check whether you've been flagged as a citizen or not. Even though they're not supposed to be doing that on a retroactive basis, it's it's intentional incompetence and it's, it's negligence in, in doing their jobs of running free and fair elections. And if I may build on what both Tamika and Jerry said, yes, there is lack of responsibility at the top is a problem. Um, no, it is not an accident. Uh, it's not happenstance. And then I would also add to that, that it's strategic. If you look at the numbers of past elections and outcomes, look at the numbers of people who have been purged and then lay, overlay that with results, all of this is part of a strategy, right? It is intentional to keep black and brown people in our state from having access to the ballot box. We know that the persons in power right now see the same studies and reports that we see where Georgia is trending majority minority faster than the country. And these folks know that they are going to lose their seats of power. We are going to have equal representation in our state with our elected officials. And so when you react from a place of fear then this is the result. You know that there are ways that you can tweak the system, that you can let something slide, that you cannot provide what is needed in some places, and that at the end of the day, it is going to disproportionately affect underserved communities. Those are the rising electorate. Those are the numbers in the communities that are growing. And so if you can keep them down just a little bit further, they know that they are going to benefit from this. So it is intentional, it is a lack of leadership, and it is strategic. All of those things overlay to explain how voter suppression is still an issue here in Georgia in 2020. But let me also offer, as I mentioned earlier, Georgia voters are resilient. We are determined. We are going to have our votes count. On June 9th, I witnessed myself a polling precinct in Union City in the southern part of Fulton County, our largest county in the state, which if any county, if any of the 159 counties should have their act together, it should be Fulton County. But we watched as the last voter emerged from the polling precinct at 12.40 a.m. She walked out of that precinct with her daughter in tow, couldn't have been more than 10 years old. She still had on her scrubs, she had on sneakers, and they had their camp chairs because she knew when she, or before she left her home, before she left work rather, she knew that she was going to face long lines and it was gonna be a long night. And yet and still, she refused to have her voice, her vote silenced. She came out proudly holding that I voted sticker and she said to us, ooh, they made me work for it this year, but that's okay, I got it done. And so with that resilience and with that determination, we keep fighting alongside them. We know that we have to fill in the gaps where our government has failed us. And so thank goodness for the state table that brings us all together so that we can be strategic in this work and fill in those gaps where our government has failed us to help our folks have access to the ballot box. Um, and in the Asian American community, election day was a hot mess just like everywhere else. <laughs> and the precincts that we were at um, were just, you know, sort of illustrates all the ongoing barriers that are faced by immigrants and the limited English proficient voters. White voters requested absentee ballots at rates two to three times of that of the Asian and Latinx voters. In Gwinnett County, which is the most diverse county, 
in Georgia, 32% white active voters filled out a request to vote by mail, while only 16 and a half Asian and 10 and a half Latinx voters did. And among the absentee voters who successfully requested ballots, because this was the other issue, Asian Americans were 2 to 2.5 times more likely to get rejected for their absentee ballots than their white candidates. This is the issue, right? It is by beyond by design. It is totally intentional, as everyone has said, and they're not even subtle about it, really, you know, um, and they completely reject it. They reject it by saying that it's not the right signature. They say that it's not, you know, maybe the right, uh, they can't tell about the, the names, right? Because there's all the issues with exact match too that all of us are, have been a part of. But it, it goes back to that same thing where we constantly as Asian Americans and immigrant communities and black communities have to prove our eligibility to rightful vote every year. Wow. Thanks for, so much for sharing that. Um, as we start looking into November and the election and knowing full well what happened in June and what's happened historically, what exactly are, are your organizations and other members of um, uh, the movement doing to try to prevent this from, from um, either happening or from deterring people from wanting to go out and actually cast their ballots? So uh, we're doing a few things uh, collectively, uh, table partners working together. One is that, you know, we did an analysis of June 9th. Um, what were the challenges that were faced, the ones that we typically expect every year, and then what were some unique challenges that we didn't anticipate based on COVID-19. Um, and one of the results is that we have a coordinated poll worker recruitment program. Uh, we, our goal is to recruit 800 poll workers. Uh, we've already recruited 600. And you know what we are then doing is tracking their application process, tracking their recruitment and application uh, so that no one can say, no county can say, we didn't have enough poll workers. We have the documentation to show that applications were submitted. Uh, and so there's no excuse for you not to have the poll workers you need. So two things are going to happen. Either uh, we're going to have the amount of poll workers needed to run the machines to help us have successful elections, or there's gonna be follow-up that would of course involve litigation because of the documentation of our work. That's, that's really the secret sauce too, is the documenting and the being able to measure our work. You know, so that's one. Two is that the pro-Georgia table in June, I think we purchased something like 30,000 masks uh, and distributed them to our partners. This fall, we have purchased 100,000 masks and we are distributing them to our partner organizations for them for their members and then to distribute to the public. Uh, in June, there again, back to the situation where there were some polling locations where there were still seniors and senior centers, poll workers were turning people away if they didn't have a mask. And again, there's levels to this, right? We understand people have a right to feel safe, especially if you're a vulnerable community. And also turning people away because they don't have a mask is not okay. That's then disenfranchising those voters. And so table partners, uh, who do poll monitoring work, uh, drove around to different polling locations and handed out masks. We will be doing that again on a larger scale this fall. So we wanna make sure that everyone has um, the masks to be safe amongst each other. Uh, we wanna make sure that there are enough masks for the poll workers. We're including uh, poll workers in um, making sure they receive our masks. And we're also making sure that there are enough poll workers uh, to, to run the machines. Uh, and I'd say, um, one of the last two things that we're doing is we are uh, looking to purchase a significant number of chairs. We're actually looking for a vendor so we can distribute polling, uh, uh, folding chairs at polling locations. Um, the American Disabilities Act, right, says that uh, uh, voters with disabilities are supposed to move to the front of the line. We did not see that happening this June. You know, I think to Jerry's point is that, um, it, it, it's, it can be chaos on election day as each county starts to do their own thing and no one is watching. So we wanna be prepared. And also not everyone has a visible disability. And also uh, five hours is a lot to ask anyone to stand. 
So we wanna be prepared to have folding chairs um, for people to sit in, to borrow, to spray so that people can rest while they are waiting. Uh, and then the last thing I'd say that we're doing, we are doing a multi-county-wide uh, uh, community uh, communications and messaging campaign. Uh, so again, we are accustomed to being able to knock on doors, right? Knock on hundreds of thousands of doors and leave materials and have conversations with voters personalize the experience, help them develop their, their voting plan. Do you need a ride to the poll? And we're not really able to do that in person. And so we're supplementing by increasing our phone calls and our texting, um, but no one wants to get 20 calls. So what we're also doing, right, as another form, uh, Pro Georgia and Partners created the Stay Woke Vote campaign. And this is our way of connecting activism and voting. We have had our own rallies and uprisings here in Georgia, even up to last night with the egregious results um, that came from Louis, uh, Louisville about uh, Breonna Taylor and the prosecution that's not happening of the police. Um, and we have a stay woke vote campaign where we are purchasing paper billboards, digital billboards, bus ads, bus shelters in trains across something like 88 counties with the stay woke vote messaging, how to find out where to register to vote. And if you see something, if you have any issues or questions, contact 866ourvote.org. That is uh, the national election protection line that they are themselves geared up to receive uh, questions, comments, and concerns, not just over the phone anymore, but via direct messenger, direct message DMs on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and text messaging. So we are prepared to quickly respond to any concerns that come up in the field uh, this fall. I'm sorry, those 866 our votes? Yes, 866-ourvote.org. And then here in Georgia, we have www.govoteGA.org. And that is where you can apply to be a poll worker. Um, well, that's where we recruit you to put you into the poll worker pipeline. Uh, and that is also where you can find information about the drop boxes, so where you can drop off your ballot in every county, along with other information about requesting your absentee ballot, uh, registering to vote online, et cetera, et cetera. Great, thank you for that. Um, Jerry. Yeah, the other thing I'd like to add associated with that is the other thing is uh, voter education is a big is a big issue as well. Uh, making sure that voters understand their options to exercise their right to vote. Uh, they can vote by mail, they can vote early in person, or they can vote on election day. And even when we, I mentioned language access issues uh, before, and the language access issues uh, under Section 208 of the Voting Rights Act, uh, any person that needs help with translation uh, can take a person of their choosing to the polls to help them through the entirety of the voting process, including voting on the machines, to make sure that they can understand what they're voting on in that process. So it's making sure that voter education is a big piece of our work and outreach uh, to our community, so that way they are equipped with the, their with knowledge of their rights as they head to exercise their options and exercise their right to vote. And then, if they encounter problems, as as uh, as Tamika said, eight six six our vote is going to be great, the a great way of making sure that we can resolve problems and issues uh, on election day or while people are voting in that process. And for us, um, it's. Uh already recruiting people who speak different languages as poll workers, but also poll monitors and also interpreters in the field. So every year we've been running interpreters. We have like these beautiful sashes that you can wear. They're pretty cute actually, I would say, right? Um, and um, really so that people understand that they have the right to the interpreter of their choice. And we did a lawsuit actually in 2018 to make sure that that was true in all elections, uh, both federal and local. And so I think it's to have that um, on deck and actually have more people um, willing to do that in person. We also have a voter hotline um, that's specific for the Asian American community. Um, and uh, this is another example of how voter um, suppression works is we have had new poll workers who we've recruited and the different organizations have recruited and they have asked 
is there a hotline that they can call if they see a voter struggling with a different language? Um, and so the answer is, unfortunately, there isn't one from um, the Secretary of State's office, but there is one through the different organizations, you know, that are that are here at, at this table. So I think um, it is still solving and problem solving and thinking through strategies about early voting, strategies about the day of, and talking to people. And just like Jerry says, we have to do stuff in multiple different languages. So in, in addition to all the different Asian languages that are represented, and we need to be out in the different communities um, in different ads too. So we also, in Georgia, um, billboards are really important. So we're gonna be doing a lot more billboards coming up too in multiple different languages in key um, uh, immigrant areas. Because um, I think it's not the question of if people know there's an election, because I think everyone knows there's an election, but I think it's more educating people about what their options are because there's a lot of misinformation that's spreading like wildfire in different immigrant communities as well as English communities. Yeah, no, my colleagues are spot on. It's really about educating and empowering voters so that they know what the process is supposed to look like and how to troubleshoot should they come upon an issue. Um, I just put in a request for another 500 of the 866 Our Vote Yard signs from the Lawyers Committee. And we will be distributing those across those 50 or so counties uh, where we do work, uh, many of them in the rural areas, um, to make sure our folks have uh, that information right there at the polling precinct. And then we will also be using a lot of Black radio to make sure that we inform folks about the resources that are available to help them protect their vote. So digital isn't always the best option in rural areas, but Black Radio still has a long reach and then using that to provide you know, those links, those websites, those URLs and those uh, phone numbers for folks to call should they encounter a problem and give them the, the, the opportunity to advocate for themselves. Yeah, that's great. Um, you all are on the front lines, and I assume you all talk to hundreds of voters, if not thousands of voters. What are you hearing? Are they more engaged this year um, in this election, or are you seeing something something else? Um, I think that there's a generational split, at least in the Asian American community that I'm seeing. Um, so you have um, older generations that are um, engaged enough into the voting process, but you have younger generations um, um, that are kind of over um, the election process because um, they feel like it's frustrating and they are not seeing the changes um, that they're wanting to have happen. And so um, it's really getting um, more messages and, um, and listening to younger folks about what they would like to see, because I don't think the candidates right now are really talking enough to the Gen Z and new sort of engaged um, folks. Um, that is a critical, um, very critical for any elected person to look at that um, group of people. That is a huge number. It can really change um, the election with having the young people vote. And particularly in the Asian American community, the social media and everything, it's going to be critical on the social media ads, influencers, etc. Those people are, are the ones that are pushing out information about voter um, information. And so for us, it's important to talk to um, uh, folks via TikTok <laughs> and, other, and other means because it's not you know, it's to bridge that gap, right? And so we're seeing, um, and then there's language barriers too um, between um, family members when talking about voting. So it's also giving young people um, vocabulary around voting because they don't actually know the words um, in uh, different languages, how to talk about voter suppression, uh, how to talk about white supremacy, how to talk about you know, Black Lives Matter in a way. And so for us, it's also doing that education with young people too, but it's bridging the gap. And I think that a lot of groups are doing that, but that is that there is a little bit of a divide there. Yeah, I think to, to, to Stephanie's point, that whole bridging the gap part, I think also um, requires us to look at the current situation that we're in in our country with the, the racial reckoning um, and the uprisings that are taking place and seeing this as an opportunity to bring more people into civic engagement, especially young people, right? Helping them understand that while 
being in the streets and protesting and having your voices heard that way is just one step in how we're going to create change and how we're going to build power. So helping them understand that the thing, the issue, the incident, the event that brought you out into the streets, there is a direct correlation to an elected official, an elected seat, a policy, a law, something. And then helping them understand that they have the power to affect these changes, especially at the local level, right? We spend so much time talking about the presidential election. And yes, it is important. But if we really think about, you know, the call to defund the police, that's going to happen at your local level. That's going to happen with your city council, with your mayor, your county commissioners. And that's where we want to start to focus their attention on what it is that they can do to improve their circumstances and to start to tear down you know, the, these systemic efforts that are literally killing us in this country right now. So this is a moment. This is an opportunity. Uh, this is not a time to shame folks. This is not a time to put people down. This is a time to bring people in and expand this electorate, expand our power and get ourselves in a position where we can start seeing these changes that we so desperately need and deserve. In, in these United States. I'd just like to add, I mean, uh, the conversations that we've been having with the Latino electorate, I mean, the Latino electorate in Georgia for several elections now has outperformed the national Latino voter participation rate. Uh, and that's that's been uh, an incre incredible work that's been done, I think, by multiple organizations. But in particular, Latinas are leading the effort here in Georgia in Latino voter turnout. Uh, without Latinas, the Latino voter turnout would not be where it is today. And that being said, I mean, as, as Wanda was talking to, uh, we don't just care about president. Uh, the president is important. But for example, in two counties in Georgia, Cobb and Gwinnett County, there's competitive races for sheriff. Uh, and the sheriff determines whether there's a partnership with immigration. And the partnership with immigration has caused an erosion of, 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 of public trust with law enforcement where I get phone calls when a crime is committed. I should not be getting a phone call when a crime is committed. That's because the immigrant community doesn't trust law enforcement that they, at, by being a victim of a crime, that they will in, then in turn, uh, turn them around and, and turn them into uh, immigration and for deportation. So uh, what's on the ballot is not just uh, for president, but local offices for sheriff, for example, are really important for our community and we're paying attention to that. Uh, and so that, I think that there's, there is a motivation within the Latino community among other communities as well for turning out to vote uh, this election cycle and we're gonna continue to break records. And I would add just a little bit because I mean, um, Wanda, Jerry and Stephanie hit it I mean, all, but I think one thing that connects all of this is that Georgians have been showing their resiliency to borrow Wanda's language. You know, I think there was a lot of uh, uh, conversation and debate at a national level during the 2018 gubernatorial race uh, that, you know, Georgians might be uh, despondent or, you know, apathetic or, and that is that was not the case at all for those of us who were doing this work on the ground and living here in Georgia. Folks were adamant and resilient uh, that we are going to work even harder if it means we have to stay in line for as long as we have to, right? That is the attitude and the language that's happening in kitchen tables, that's happening on the doors, that's happening in chats at Kroger. You know, there is, there is, there's a community thing happening here where we are all acknowledging as black and brown people that they, the amorphous they are making it very hard for us to vote and that we, the collective we, won't let that happen. And you know, we are doing our part to then foster, to support that, to provide the tools to make it as easy as possible and as comfortable as possible, in addition to doing the ongoing challenges and protecting access to the ballot. And so that means breakfast in the morning, that means dinner in the evening, that means magicians and jugglers throughout the day, that means uh, jazz bands, uh, that means all of the above, right? Because our folks, we are resilient people. We have to be, right? And so it is, if anything, inspiring. Like we are in lockstep on one page with our community, which is we're going to do, to quote Wanda again, we're voting by any means necessary. Well, I 
want to literally just thank you all for everything that you all are doing. Um, you're all on the front lines, and I appreciate the fact that you're mobilizing black and brown communities across across the state of Georgia, and I think that's a, an incredible job, and I just commend you for, for doing that. Um, I do want to move to another discussion or another topic, um, and that's on gerrymandering. And I just want to get some information from you about what you all have seen, what you all are working on, and the way forward. So uh, Pro-Georgia and Table Partners started working together around census and redistricting since 2017. We said we are going to hold our ongoing work while also planning for census and redistricting in 2020 and beyond. Um, I would just wanna share that in Georgia, white men make up about 27% of the state's population, but they hold 56% of all elected seats across the state. That is over-representation. Uh, women, uh, women of color make up about 23% of the state's population and only 7% of all elected seats. So it, there's, there's a discrepancy there. Um, and I'll leave it to Jerry and Stephanie and Wanda to share specific examples of when we've pushed back against uh, bad redistricting bills. I will say for us that uh, we see uh, representation as part of the building power for black and brown communities. So, you know, we wanna make sure that people can vote that they want to vote because we've connected the act of voting to the issues that matter, but that when they do vote, we want to make sure that their vote is not diluted by packing or by cracking, which is packing all the people of color into one district so we get one representative or diluting us right into majority white districts so that our vote and our voice will never really show up when it comes time to choosing our representation. Jerry, Wanda, Stephanie, any additional insights? Yeah, I think uh, some of the lessons that we learned uh, prior in the in the last redistricting cycle, pro Georgia did not exist, uh, and uh, one of the things that that we learned uh, in uh, collectively as civil rights organizations that are working on particularly voting rights issues is that we can't continue to work in our own silos and not collectively build power for all our communities because our communities have shared values, our communities have shared destinies, uh, and we, we, we know how to share power within our own communities. Uh, and that being said, uh, we started working, as Tamika said, in 2017, uh, we are building a multiracial coalition to ensure that uh, our, not elected officials, not political parties, but that our communities are the centered uh, and the anchor to how redistricting is being done in 2021. And we're making sure that we uh, arm ourselves with the ability to be able to create our own maps to make sure that our community's power is lifted up in that process, not for party, but for the power for our own communities. Uh, so that's that's the work that we're doing. We, we And that's part of the collective work that we're doing. The census is a key building block to that. So that's why we wanna make sure that everybody is counted. But then after that is making sure that our communities get fair representation. As Tamika indicated, right now, that's not the case uh, with elected officials around the, around the state. And we can change that in 2021. Yeah, to Jerry's point, you know, we didn't have, uh, so so Black Voters Matter didn't exist the last time we had redistricting. Um, and so now that we have gotten the guidance and the information from the table, we are going to be able to empower our folks to make certain that they know that this is happening um, and, and what we can do to try to, um, you know, lessen and, and mitigate that, the, the results of that. I mean, Georgia has either, we either have the most or the second most number of predominantly black counties. Uh, we're right around the same number as Mississippi, but as mentioned before, you know, we have far more counties. But all that to say is that in most of these counties, black people still don't have power. We don't have seats, um, representation on school boards, on county commissioners. 
And so we see and we live the effects of gerrymandering every day. So now that we've got this base and this process and this understanding and a way to talk to our folks about this, we are going to be better prepared uh, for harm reduction, to lessen the harm on that, and to be at the table demanding, not asking, demanding that we get the fair representation that is guaranteed us as citizens of this country. And so, you know, like Jerry said, when we form these coalitions and we start working together, look out, unstoppable. We are going to get these seats. We are going to get this representation. We are no longer asking. We are way too smart. We are way too, uh, we have way too many resources. And, you know, look, litigation, that is always an option. Happy to use that as a tool in the toolbox, whatever it is going to take but we are going to get this representation. We are going to start uh, stopping that out here in Georgia because as we can see, it is literally costing us our lives. And collectively we've started the Georgia Redistricting Alliance. Um, and I think one of the things that we have seen is that all the groups right now, um, like in real time are working actually triple times. So it's census, it's voter registration, voter education, plus getting ready for redistricting. So that is on everybody's mind. And so we really wanted to make sure that we were ahead of the game. Um, and that's why we started working on it um, so early. And so one of the staff from our organization is helping really coordinate the groups you know, together just to make sure that that people of color voices are at the center of it, um, like everyone is saying, and just to be prepared um, and getting our communities really ready for it. Also, um, it's important for communities to see the connection between voting, census, and redistricting. Yeah. So we have time for one last question. This, this conversation has been amazing, by the way. It's, it's um, very, not only informative, but also very inspiring. Um, and I do have one question, which I think a lot of people who are watching and listening um, uh, asking themselves, like, what can they do? Um, not only in their own states, but in other states, and also in the South, like, what can people actually do to um, uh, develop a way forward? Uh, so what can people do? Uh, before I uh, worked at Pro-Georgia, before I was uh, working in democracy reform, I was a community organizer for most of um, my career. And, you know, I think what is special about Pro-Georgia, what can people do? I encourage people to find their, their organizational home. Uh, the way we do our work, we will not succeed as individuals, right? So, I, you know, I think we can often say, you know, sign this, you sign this petition. Uh, you should, you know, sign up to be a poll worker. Uh, you should uh, also, you know, sign up to do any text bank or phone bank that's being coordinated in your state where you can call in your state or call other states. Uh, and I think if we're talking about building long-term sustainable power and not just the one individual at the moment action, but long-term power building where we retain, recruit and retain people for our progressive movement, I think that then requires people to find their organizational home. That means find you know, the Asian American Advancing Justice chapter in your state. That, may, that means find uh, the Georgia Association for Latino Elected Officials that resides in your state. That means find the Black Voters Matter organization in your state. You know, I think that is really the foundation of building long-term power uh, because yes, this election is critical. Uh, yes, we have a lot of work ahead of us and history is gonna look back, this is gonna be one of many pivotal moments in history. And the work is gonna continue past fall 2020. Uh, and that means we need people who say, what is it I can do? We need them to be in this for the long haul. And so step one is to join a local uh, community organization. And one clarifying question, um, what can comms folks do specifically the folks who are joining us on on this call and on the uh, on the Zoom, I have one thing that I've been pushing lately, which is um, think of election day as tax day. Election day is actually the deadline to vote. It is not actually the day that you have to vote. And especially now with everything that's happening, you have multiple ways, right, um, to uh, access voting earlier. So don't even think about it as early voting. Just think that November third is the deadline that I have to vote by, but there are 
try to really encourage people to think about voting as early as possible. Think about it in a way um, so that you don't actually have to make the plan, right? And so that you allow people who are essential workers, you allow people who don't have the capacity to do it any other day than that day, that's their day to vote, right? But other people who have the privilege to vote at a different time, do it now. Wanda, you're on mute, by the way. Yeah, sorry. I would just add that, you know, folks who find themselves in a uh, position of leadership, that they take a step back and really review and reflect on a few things. So inclusivity, you know, look at the people in the circle around you. Look at the people in management positions. Look at the people who are in positions of power. Are they reflective of the community? Um, look at, you know, the patriarchy within your, within your organization. Is it predominantly male? Um, and then I would also say that people in, in positions of leadership and power, when you are making inroads in inclusivity, also trust the people that you are bringing in, right? Trust me, trust Stephanie, trust Jerry, trust Tamika to come up with a sound strategy to get the wins and the victories that we need to help build power in our communities. Trust us to tell our own stories. Trust us to define success. Trust us to lead this work. We are in a position where we are now, quite frankly, because the wrong people are leading and they are leading based on what they know. And with that, without that inclusivity, without that diversity, we go down one path, but there's more than one path to victory. And there's got to be more than one way to speak to all of the diversity in this country and in our state. So I would say lead with trust, lead with love, hear us, listen, be good organizers. That's the first thing we learn as organizers is to listen, hear our folks and acknowledge what is going on in their community, in their life, within their circle. And just, just, briefly, just briefly to add, because um, uh, I know we're running out of time and uh, I think that uh, particularly folks that work in the comm space, uh, I think leading with stories that Wanda talked about, the, about the resiliency and not feeding into the apathy myth uh, that exists out there is, is really critically important. Again, thanks for everything that you all are doing out there for our communities. Um, I not only appreciate it, but I imagine that thousands and millions of people across the country are also appreciative of everything that you all are working on and working towards. So thank you. Thank you very much for that. Um, this wraps our panel discussion. I wish we could have gone on a lot longer because we could have. Um, maybe next time, maybe next year we can actually get back together and have a bigger, broader discussion about victories and changes and everything that we're bringing to the table coming, coming in 2021. So again, thank you all so much. Hopefully next year we can be meeting in person. Until then, we can continue having Zoom cocktail hours with each other. So thanks so much. Talk to you all again soon.